This episode has been brought to you in part by Canderell and Kingset Capital. Coming soon, affordable luxury condominium living at 908 St. Clair West. Nestled into a vibrant, one-of-a-kind neighborhood, 908 St. Clair West is a modern treasure, offering a sophisticated lifestyle inspired by St. Clair Village and prestigious Forest Hill. Register today at 908stclairwest.com. This is Bonjour Chai, the Parliamentary Cop Edition. I'm Avi Feinwald in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Toronto and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we present a tribute to the late Ivan Reitman. We speak to his longtime friend and collaborator, Len Bloom, and we discuss whether his body of work was Jewish. But first, of course, Alana, David, how's your week been? Uh, pretty uneventful, except the fact that, you know, we had our final graduating class for uh, Temple B'nai Tikva. It was the Intro to Judaism class. I'm proud to say that everyone passed, and some people will be uh, continuing on to the conversion phase, I think. Others, maybe less so. Is your is your partner planning on converting after taking the class, or is there uh, is he happy to remain one of the uh, goys of the world he is, for which we respect him for? <laughs> uh, there is a 0% chance of him converting. I think he is very proud to remain a faithful oh. and loyal goy. Awesome. Alana, how's your week been? Um, also not that eventful, though I just remembered I went skating last night with Moisha House Maple Leaf Gardens, which was really lovely. It was downtown in front of the big Toronto sign, and I noticed there was a Band-Aid on one of the letters, and I asked my roommates, like, why is there a Band-Aid on the Toronto sign? And he was like, I think it's because of covid why are we emulating COVID in the, like, signage for Toronto? I just don't like that. Is it not because Toronto is broken and the only thing that can that they think can fix it is a Band-Aid? Yeah, honestly, probably. Who knows? I'm starting to get tired of the buildings. I actually went down to visit a friend of mine who lives in Kitchener, um, which was very nice. I went there for Shabbat last weekend just to get away from the busyness of the city which is starting to get to me. Alana, you said you said the word that we shall not name anymore right. on this podcast, which is COVID. We are not allowed to talk about restrictions anymore. We are not allowed to talk about... It seems like we're actually moving forward and all restrictions are now falling across the country. But we shan't talk about that. <laughs> are you perpetuating this? Um, what we should maybe talk about Impossibly. is our old co-host. Avi, do you want to tell us what happened? Oh my God. Uh, Melissa Lansman on the floor of Parliament Hill um, asked a very pointed question of the premier of which she is entitled to. um, And he responded as he is entitled to. And I think um, the premier or the prime minister, the prime minister, I'm sorry. Yes, premiers are provincial Um, as the prime minister uh, answered that if you want to stand with the truckers, you're also standing with people who are um, holding swastikas and Confederate flags, at which point um, parliament erupted into anger um, from the opposition parties. And um, Melissa asked a point of order, formally asked the prime minister for an apology. Uh, He has not, he was not on the floor. He has not apologized yet. Um, Melissa has now gone on to fame and infamy um, as being the um, Jew who says that she... Former host of... Yes, as the Jewish member of parliament who she says was referred to as standing with, you know, Nazis and being a Nazi. Um, She was on Fox News last night uh, with Laura Ingram. 
Oh my the, the God. The Ingram angle had her on. She's like the prime minister is the one um, divide, dividing the country into urban and rural and east and west, never minding the fact that Melissa Lanceman herself is the most urban and the most east person that there is. Um, but uh, she is enjoying her 15 minutes of fame right now. Um, hopefully she parlays it into other great things for her great career. But right now, this is her moment. These people, very often misogynistic, racist, women hate science deniers, the fringe. Same prime minister six years later as he fans the flames of an unjustified national emergency. So, Mr. Speaker, when did the prime minister lose his way? When did it happen? Right, honorable prime minister. Mr. Speaker, conservative party members can stand with people who wave swastikas. They can stand with people who wave uh, the Confederate flag. We will choose to stand with Canadians who deserve to be able to get to their jobs, who be able to get their lives back. These illegal protests need to stop, and they will, Mr. Speaker. What do you guys, what's your take on this? Is she angling to run for the conservative leadership right now? She's trying to take down uh, Mr. Pierre? Oh, I think it's a little premature for that. Maybe maybe in four years after after uh, the next round of elections happens, it just seems like she is like the the Twitter or the Instagram or the Facebook megastar of the conservative party right now. You know, she likes the attack. She likes being on it on the attack a lot. I know friends on Facebook posted her response to Trudeau. It's very uh, interesting to see what she's doing. So explain to to our listeners exactly. So was Melissa saying she is pro the trucker convoy or she was just saying like the government needs to step up on other issues? Explain to us what's going on here. The Conservative Party's official stance and her stated stance has basically been um, we really believe what the truckers are saying. It's time to open up the country. It's time to end these mandates. It's time to allow these people to have a voice. This is legitimate protest and that it is something that we want to applaud and we want to do this. And then when they are faced with the fact that many of these people um, have swastikas, have Confederate flags and all these things, um, they are either silent as they were for the first little while and and then they start denouncing that piece of it. And they say, that part is disgusting, but I stand with the truckers for everything else. But, but Avi, here's the tricky thing. It's like they said, we 100% support the truckers coming in. Then all of a sudden they switch gears and sort of saying, well, we support the truckers, but we don't support this protest. It is time to go home. At the same time, we believe in law and order and everyone should respect the police. But at the other time, this is very dangerous precedent set by the Emergency Power Act. It almost feels like they cannot figure out their position and they don't know where they're standing. And they're trying to straddle these two ideas of, we're the law and order, we're the conservative party, we believe in the the rule of law, but at the same time, we need to... Um, we need to move forward and everything. Look, I don't think anybody denies that we need to move forward. I think that the people that are ignoring the fact that the um, trucker protest is inextricably entwined, as we learned weeks ago from uh, one of our guests, with white supremacy, that this is not just an incidental thing, um, is undeniable. Mm -hmm. If the Conservative Party and Melissa Lanceman wants to ignore that, that's their choice. Um, But to, to Melissa specifically, right, I think it's incredible incredibly hypocritical, right? You cannot be, right, vehemently rejecting the argument of many people, Jews and not, who say that they disagree with Israel's policies, but they stand with Jews, 
right? And then they say that anybody who is anti-Zionist is automatically anti-Semitic. You cannot separate those two things. You cannot say oh, that Israel's policies are wrong point. and not be anti-Semitic. And then on the other hand, go and say, I denounce the swastikas, mm. but the truckers are all great Canadians who just want their constitutional freedoms, right? That to me is inexcusable from somebody who says it on one side and not on the other. You know what? Not to like throw Melissa under the bus here, but it's true. When, when she was on the show... A lot of uh, her arguments were very much about anyone who's anti-Zionist is anti-Semitic. Like, anti so you bring up a very interesting point. Uh, there's not really a good argument against that one. We actually had a lot of um, people um, write in overnight. Um, we're recording Thursday morning. We've had people since last night um, write into Bonjour High. Uh, we've had people tell us that they are ashamed of her. They, um, you know, just, you know, can't understand how this person sees what she is doing and 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 doesn't understand that you know this is completely you know bonkers she spoke up now i'm curious what the other jewish mps from the other parties had to say in response to her did they defend melissa what were the other jewish mps from the liberal party i don't know if there are there any jewish mps in the ndp i'm guaranteed there's probably no jewish mps in the block did anyone say anything about her remarks and how they felt it landed i haven't heard any major you know but i'm not on the twitter sphere which is where all these hot takes happen um so it's entirely possible that that is there um i just know what comes into my inbox. I was about to read something um, from a listener um, who calls Melissa Lansman a fraud. She call, he calls her a fair weather advocate. Um, your only advocate, you only advocate against anti-Semitism when it's beneficial to you. Why don't you as the representative of the one of the largest Jewish communities in Canada tweet and condemn immediately the anti-Semitism found on convoy rallies? Why haven't you said anything at all? No matter their political orientation, Canadian Jews look to you to protect our faith at the highest level of Canadian politics and you fail to do so, right? And in fact, you avoided it. Um, and she he, he points out that, you know, silence is violence, right? And Melissa, your silence is just as good as standing with the anti-Semites and neo-Nazis at the protest. Um, and this is, you know, from Ruben Polanski Shapiro, who's a student at Concordia. Um, and I just, I don't understand how... Um, even if you denounce these swastikas, you you go and you say that that part of it is separate. Um, but the silence is deafening. The standing against it when you're no longer silent is equally as problematic. And um, I think people are recognizing this of Melissa. And I'm sure some people will stand with her and say, yes, you are a staunch defender of the faith at all times. Um, I don't know. I, uh, I'm a little has disappointed she, right now. Has she responded to any of this at all? Like with any type of defense? Well, she responded she by going on, you know, Fox News, which lobbed her a bunch of softballs and proved her point. And, it, you know, she's making it sound like, you know, the the um, the prime minister is calling her a Nazi. And she says, well, as the, you know, as the descendant of survivors, how can you possibly call me a Nazi? He's not calling her a Nazi. He is saying that if you are standing with the truckers, you are standing with people who supply sw who like swastikas to the public and that's a problem and who supply guns at the coots border as well too correct but anyways melissa you are welcome to come on here and have your say um anytime you want um let's hear from you and let's hear from anybody else i'm curious what other people's thoughts are send us an email at bonjour at the cjn.ca let us know your comments um or get at us at the slack channel um and if you want to get on the slack channel send us an email at the same email bonjour at the cjn.ca and we will get you on the slack channel
Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atelier Lou Bijouterie in Montreal, Quebec. Atelier Lou specializes in watches and custom-designed jewelry along with a curated selection of designer jewelry. Visit us online or in person and Eric Goldberg will help make your jewelry dreams come true. Atelier Lou is offering a promo code for all Bonjour High listeners using BON18 at checkout for 10% off your order at atelierlou.com. Ivan Reitman arrived in Canada at the age of four, the child of Holocaust survivors from Hungary. He rose the ranks of Canadian media and shot to fame with his involvement in screwball comedies like Animal House, Meatballs, and Ghostbusters. And he died this past Saturday at the age of 75 after a long career in the film industry. Uh, We're going to speak to one of his close collaborators shortly. But before we do, I wanted to ask you guys first, as actors and as Jewish actors, how do you relate to the work of Ivan Reitman? I mean, I think I relate more to it as a 14-year-old boy than anything else. I think these movies were really primed for pre-adolescent and teenage boys growing up they they meant a lot to me and you know one in particular that I wanted to bring up was private parts I think it really was an exciting moment for me as a 12 year old as a 13 year old watching this movie uh it's about the life of Howard Stern it sort of brought up this this idea of a very shy awkward Jewish guy very horny but very shy and awkward person bringing you know bringing his dreams to to the forefront. He was a disc jockey. He was kind of a loser. And I think maybe I identified with that a little bit growing up. So a lot of his movies like Dave, Junior, Kindergarten Cop, these movies meant a lot to me growing up. I think you bring up the exact reason why I don't resonate with his movies is that I am not a 14-year-old boy and have never been a 14-year-old boy. Um, I did see Ghostbusters when I was a kid, and I remember feeling kind of uncomfortable watching it in certain spots. I wasn't really allowed to watch movies that had a lot of sexuality in them, so that's probably why I didn't see a lot of these films. Um, And then in preparation for this episode, I tried watching Meatballs, and then when it got to the sexual assault scene, I kind of couldn't continue watching. Um, But um, I do see a lot of Jewishness, uh, especially in that film. It reminded me a lot of my time at camp. But I think that the movies are definitely geared towards a male audience. And so it doesn't really speak my language. Do you think that these movies still hold up to today? Or are they really of a decade that is in the 90s and we're done with? Well, I mean, that that's a big question, right? Because I feel like there is something charming about watching older movies. Like sometimes I'm just in the mood to watch a movie from the 80s or the 90s and you're kind of aware like, oh, these, these aren't so PC. And then, you know, there's lots of people who are like, we're too PC these days. It's good to kind of push the envelope. So I think it just depends on your personal comfort level. Um, I just have a really hard time watching movies that I find are very, very much from the male perspective because women often get really, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Subjectified? Short trip? Objectified. That's the word I was looking for. Like just those scenes in Meatballs where it's just like shots of women's breasts. I'm like, yeah, I don't need to watch this. (laughs) I rewatched it, um, with my wife the other day and, uh, in preparation for this, she was like, did women just not wear bras in camp like at all? in the 70s and 80s like what's going on there well, it just made me think about it made me think about the actresses in the film like how did they feel getting those notes like oh yeah in this shot it's going to be a close-up of of your breast because these boys are ogling you and you're just kind of like going to make a joke and then walk on by because like i think that would make me uncomfortable like i remember being on a set once i was doing a, a stand-in job which is basically uh acting out the movements of what the actor is going to do without speaking and then they bring in the actor actor to actually film the scene and this male director he like pushed me around the set like he had his arm on my back and he just was like okay and then she goes here and then she goes there and then she goes there and then after like an hour of this he goes 
is it okay that I'm touching your arm? <laughs> I was like, well, I could ask that before. <laughs> Obviously, I wasn't going to say anything because it was like a famous director. But it just, this kind of stuff happens. And it just made me think of that while I was watching Meatballs. Now, those movies definitely exist in that. But there's other movies like Twins, Junior, Kindergarten Cop, which I think is, you know, Schwarzenegger's best film of all time. And even Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, which has, you know... the oh, it, Such a great movie. A classic. A definite classic where the... Estelle Getty. <laughs> The, a wonderful, right? A strong female character too. So yeah, Alana, those, those movies that you talked about, the male gaze absolutely exists. But there's some very other strong movies with some female protagonists in it too that I would encourage you to watch. Well, maybe I'll check them out. Maybe I, I started off on a weird note. But I, I will say that uh, in my research, I saw that he made, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger into a comedy star. Like that pivoted his career. And even if mm-hmm. I hadn't seen the movies, I was aware that Schwarzenegger was suddenly doing comedy. And he also started Bill Murray's career. That Meatballs was his first big movie. And and I actually am a big fan of Danny DeVito. So when I was looking up trailers for all of these films that I haven't seen that you just mentioned... Um, Danny DeVito's always funny, so who knows? Maybe I would get a kick out of some of the other ones. Abby, were I you growing up watching these movies? Yeah, or were you already in your thirties? Um, you know, because I was born in the era of Buster Keaton, and uh, now that was great film. Or should I say it in the, you know, in the nineteen thirties? Now that was great <laughs> filmmaking. Um, now that was a good picture back then in the day. Um, anyways, um, look, I watched all of these films. Um, I was going through, but I never really. I have to say, and maybe it's because I'm not in the theater world. I'm not an actor. Or I'm not. I was never an aspiring one. I never thought about him as this like person, right? These are just films that are discrete. You never think about as a kid the behind the making scenes. them. Yeah. Um, the behind the scenes, but like, yeah, it sort of is interesting when you stop and think about it as a kid. Even they're like, oh, there's these three films where Arnold Schwarzenegger is in this like you know very strange like humorous thing. Like we're gonna put a out of pl- a person into an out of place sort of situation where they don't belong and see what comedy ensues. And I, I, I mean, I've seen them again recently I, I thought that they stood up to the test of time there wasn't anything too objectionable about them um and they i mean i thought that they were like you know getting on the jewish thing i don't think i'm a right man and we can ask our guest whether there was anything specifically like fundamentally jewish right about the ideas uh, about the movies but i thought that they really represented a lot of jewish values the idea of like somebody you know in a strange place right making their mm. way and figuring it out and, and you know accomplishing something i thought about like you know no strings attached which was one of his like most recent films um have you ever either you saw it ever is that Natalie the portman yeah that one i actually um, have and, seen uh, ashton kutcher yeah right they're basically trying to have this like no strings attached sex relationship but they end up like falling, falling in, love, in love and there's this like there's just this whole like back and forth and like will they won't they what's going on are they like in it are they you know are they together are they not together is this gonna work is it not gonna work I'm like oh that's kind of like the song of songs it's like Shira Shirim where the the lovers are like constantly pursuing each other and constantly missing each other I, I don't know if he was like overtly thinking about that but that these are tropes that show up in Jewish literature and in Jewish values and Jewish ideas all the time the other thing that came uh, up for me in my research was he's made some statements about making very comedic light films to bring humor into this world because his parents were survivors, which I think is maybe the most Jewish part of it. You know, if you, if we think of, um, oh, what was the movie there that won the Oscar about the um, the guy with the, uh, La Vita e Bella, right? Life is good. Life is beautiful. Life is beautiful. Life is beautiful. Um where the um, the actor is playing a uh, a guy who's trying to prevent his kid from realizing that there's a Holocaust going on, and he's trying to like he he 
turns it all into a game and an elaborate like thing. It's exactly that. It's like, let's use humor to deflect the fact that we don't want to dwell on this all the time. It's a very Jewish idea. And as to the question of whether these things like, you know, stand up to the test of time, uh, you know, I, I, I really don't buy those arguments, right? I think that these people were making films for their time and products of their time and were making jokes that they thought were acceptable for their time. Um, there are so many movies that I can think of right now that, will easily, I don't know what those questions are going to be, but in 20 years, we're going to be asking ourselves, like, yeah. oh my God, how did we laugh at Bridesmaids? That was a horrible offensive film, mm. right? Mrs. Doubtfire, that doesn't speak well to the trans experience. There are so many movies that are considered wholesome and wonderful and um, beautiful, great statements, even using humor, but promoting a positive outlook on life and 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 having great narratives that in 10 and 20 years we are going to go and say how could you possibly have seen that you know as acceptable and we should really not judge these films unless they are egregiously problematic by the standards of their time we should accept them as they are for the products of their time and on that note let's talk to our guest Len Bloom is a Canadian screenwriter, producer, musician, yoga teacher, among many other things. While he has an accomplished career on his own, including the cult classic heavy metal and the film uh, Carmine Street Guitars, which features uh, Bill Frizzell, Nels Klein, and a host of other guitarists to tell the story of a celebrated New York guitar shop, his most notable collaboration was being the writer for many of the classic Ivan Reitman films, including Meatballs, Stripes, Beethoven Second, and the Howard Stern autobiopic Private Parts. Len Bloom, welcome to Bonjour High. Hi. Thank you for um, allowing me to speak. I'd like to start with the work you guys did together. Um, the mm -hmm. first line on your Rotten Tomatoes bio says that you specialize in goofy comedies and has worked closely with director-producer Ivan Reitman. Was goofy comedy really the path to greatness <laughs> as you had thought? Was it something you stumbled on while trying to be serious auteurs? Um, Tell us about that. I met Ivan when I was 17. He was 21. I was in high school. He, uh, we, I played guitar. He played guitar. And my friend Danny Goldberg, who I co-wrote with and who also co-produced with Ivan, I had been in a band with Danny and uh, Danny had gone on to, he was older than me as well, had gone on to university where he met Ivan and they started making movies, student movies. And Danny called me and said, uh, I'm not playing music now, I'm making movies. You have to meet my friend Ivan. And there was a sort of jam session at the McMaster Student Union. So I took my guitar and went over. And when I walked in, there was a group of people playing and singing, but it was centered on this one guy who happened to be Ivan. And Ivan had a beautiful voice and he would sing. But when he got bored with the song, he would just change the song and everybody would follow. He had that kind of authority in his voice. He wasn't saying anything. He was just playing and singing and then he'd change the song. And so I started playing and singing with him. And bit by bit, the evening wore on, people left. They drifted off until it was just Ivan and I and playing and singing songs we knew until we literally ran out of songs. And at the end of that, we uh, took a walk to the very first Tim Hortons in West End of Hamilton, or the second Tim Hortons. And um, we sat and had a coffee and talked. And that was the night I met Ivan. And we remained close uh, from that point on. I was 17. Now, I was still a musician. And while Ivan was making student movies with Danny Goldberg, I'd bring my musicians in to McMaster after the gig. And we'd play music for Ivan's movies. 
Then when Ivan graduated, he wanted to make commercial movies. I was a full-time musician by then, so I didn't, so my days were free. I gigged at night. And so if Ivan was shooting cannibal girls and they needed someone to stop traffic without permits or anything, I would stand in the middle of the street and stop traffic and he'd shoot his scene with Eugene Levy for cannibal girls. So we were friends. That's the that's the thing to understand. And I grew up in Montreal at a time when kids couldn't go to movies. Movies were not part of my reference, really. But Ivan loved movies and Danny loved movies. And they felt I might be good at writing them and convinced me in my spare time to write. Um, I think because of my family tradition, there were no musicians in my family tradition. There were a lot of Torah scholars and writers. And uh, so um, it turned out I was good at that. I don't know if Ivan mentioned this, but you mentioned that you wanted to craft your films as a Jew through a Jewish lens itself. Can you explain that and what that meant to you? Well, yeah, observances change, but the education does not change. The basic idea that one thinks for oneself, one is ready to leave Egypt at any time, and it's not easy to leave Egypt and walk into the unknown. Um, and this is part of the basic Jewish uh, concept. This is what kids hopefully come out of the Seder with, the idea that Certain conditions in life enslave you, but that you can actually walk out into the unknown and chances are it will work out, at least according to the story of the Seder, it works out miraculously. It's funny, I brought this up. I brought this up just before you were on. We were talking mm -hmm. and uh, I talked about the trio of Arnold Schwarzenegger films as being fish out of water um, sorts of films and that that's a very Jewish idea, that we're always a stranger in a strange land and we have to learn to adapt and that that theme runs through those movies as well as, you know, quite a few other movies in the in the entire, you know, Meatballs Stripes movies I see as about two things. One, it's the victory of the underprivileged, the people mm -hmm. in the camp, the, the meatballs that were connected sure. with, not the privileged camp, but they find a way to rise up from their lowly immigrant status, or at least impoverished status, to uh, achieve satisfaction and happiness. In Stripes, these guys are misfits, uh, Bill Murray and Harold Ramis, and um, they, for some reason, because of the disadvantaged circumstances in Bill's life and his character, they join the army, and in the army, they come to bond with these other characters who are not as intelligent as them, for the most part, and come to, to lead them to some form of the promised land. Ivan always felt, well, at the Stripes time, he felt that his characters should finish the movie in a better economic, in better, uh, not just economic sense, but in life sense, in a better place than they were when they started the movie. He didn't say we're walking out of Egypt, I'm saying that, but he was very sure. Now you have to understand Ivan's life story too. His parents, his father was a very successful a vinegar factory owner after the Nazis were defeated and before in 48 the communists took over Czechoslovakia after which his father was thrown into prison with the other factory owners now the factories in Czechoslovakia under the communists couldn't produce anything because the workers didn't know how to operate them so the communists figured that out and set Ivan's father under armed guard to get each vinegar factory up and running throughout the country. Now, knowing that when it was when the uh, workers had been trained, 
he, Ivan's mother felt that they would kill Ivan's father because they hated capitalist factory owners. So she arranged for Ivan, who was four years old at the time, his father and she to be nailed into under the deck of a, a Bulgarian or Romanian um, tugboat that was pulling a barge of coal to Vienna along the Danube. Um, and they eventually got out and made it to the American portion of Vienna and were free. So Ivan's life story comes from people who were oppressed as parents and found their way to freedom and then found their way to success as well. When Ivan's father landed in Toronto in 1952, the Jewish Immigrant Aid Society lent him or gave him $600 and he borrowed another $400 to buy a tiny dry cleaning store. And they worked there and his mother was a seamstress there. Now, remember, these had been very successful people in Czechoslovakia before the communists. He drove a Mercedes Benz. Ivan had his own puppet theater. It was puppets. Like it was a very successful family. So from that tiny dry cleaning store, Ivan's father worked his way into a higher better dry cleaning store and ultimately owned a lot called that was Farb's Car Wash at the corner of King and John. Ivan, after his father died, Ivan and his sisters had convinced the Toronto International Film Festival to build their headquarters at the corner of King and John as the first 10 floors of a building called Festival Towers. When I heard Ivan was doing this, I said, oh, save a suite for me. I want to buy a suite in that building. And I'm in that suite today. I'm talking to you from that suite on top of Farb's car wash. <laughs> well, I, I'm just curious. You mentioned uh, Ivan wanted to always have the characters end up in a better place than they were before. Something at the that time came of up, Stripes. At the time of Stripes. Oh, at the, at the time of Stripes. Okay. Yeah. I was just wondering if, if he had any other kind of philosophies around his work, because something that I read, which we were discussing before, is that because his parents were survivors and because of everything his family had been through, he felt that was where his drive to create comedy came from. Do you feel like you remember any other general philosophies that he had? His mother, the war hurt her happiness very badly. So in Ivan's voice, he might say something imitating his mother. He would say, and I'm going to try to imitate Ivan imitating his mother. Just be happy. I know. I get it. You hear it? <laughs> wanting the others around her to be happy, but feeling that her own happiness was limited. Ivan's father could be happy. To him, life was a miracle. His, his beloved had returned after the war. They right. escaped wow. from communist Czechoslovakia. So Ivan had that combination of the need to create happiness for others, like his mother, but the joy and ability to do it from his father. Now, also, his mother came from a very artistic family filled with writers and actors, musicians. So Ivan had both the joy and the artistic bent. So I, I'm curious, you, you both had this very long, very fruitful collaboration together, making all these movies, either as a screenwriter, director, producer. What was it like to work directly with Ivan Reitman itself? What was the collaboration like? Uh, I mean, it was wonderful. Uh, remember, we were friends before we worked together. He he thought I was he thought I might be a, a screenwriter. Like he convinced me to stop being a musician and be a screenwriter. In fact, as we were playing, as we were writing meatballs, I said to Ivan, "Look, Ivan, if I was playing in a club, I'd be earning three hundred bucks a week. I need three hundred bucks a week." 
while I'm writing Meatball, so Ivan wrote me a check. Uh, I, I guess he was producing a TV show, two TV shows at City TV at the time, Sweet City Woman and The Greed Show. <laughs> uh, so he had some money. So he paid me 300 a week for those six weeks that we started writing Meatballs. Um, he was wonderful to work with. He, because English was not his first language, he was somewhat insecure then about writing in English. And I think he felt quite secure at my ability to write or increasingly secure. But he was very clear. He would say, this scene should be shorter. This scene should be longer. This scene should be funnier. This scene should be faster. Cut out this scene. Like he was he was very clear about what he wanted. Like from the beginning, he was clear. Um, and his instincts were very, very good. With meatballs, we were often we were often in the room with him writing stripes. Danny and I were in Toronto. Ivan had moved to Hollywood. We would read him our scenes over the phone at the end of the day, and he would say the same thing. We would read it without expression. We were not acting the scenes. We were reading the scenes so he could experience it as some form of text as opposed to us hyping it. And he would say the same kind of things. This scene should be shorter. You don't need that scene. That's a good line. See if you can add two funny lines after that. Uh, he was directive. So working with him was very clear. And his, his instincts were terrific. Working with him in the room later in, in Hollywood, once these movies had been very successful and we had more confidence, I'd sit with Ivan and we'd work out scene by scene what were the problems. And when we hit a problem, often... Often, I mean, when I say often, I mean maybe a dozen times, he'd say, uh, let's take a break. And he'd go out and sometimes he'd go to the bathroom and he'd come back a minute or two or five minutes later and say, I've got it. And he would say the solution that came to him during the break. And then we'd work out the solution. Now, these are big script issues. We weren't talking about individual lines at this point. We were talking about story, what happens here, what happens there, how to keep the audience um, how to surprise the audience in ways that would delight them. Okay. So I was I was watching uh, Private Parts the other night again, and it brought up a lot of nostalgia for me and a lot of great memories as a 13-year-old, 14-year-old boy. I'm curious whether you feel a lot of these movies from the 90s that you collaborated with, do you think they still hold up today? Well, let me first ask you, did you sneak into the theater as a 13-year-old boy, or did you see it on video, or how did you see Private Parts? I watched it on video with my mother. Oh, okay. What did she think of it? Oh she God, was very, she was, she, and a half there. <laughs> she was very much in favor of it because she was very positive. I think she was very sex positive about it. And she said she was tired of seeing all these violent movies. This was just about, this was about sex, which is the most natural thing in the world. And it was just about this young, awkward, goofy, shy, horny kid that was just trying to find his place in the world. Okay. Let me tell you something about the design of private parts since you bring it up. I was never worried about Howard Stern's listeners. Neither was Ivan. We knew they would come see the movie. Any place that he his radio show was playing, that movie broke box office records in those cities. What my concern was, was the, uh, the girlfriends, partners, women, um, your mother, what was in the movie for her. And if you look at that movie, Howard is a failure getting the wrong at bad end of the stick as a little kid, as a teenager. Every scene is bad until he convinces this beautiful woman, Mary, uh, who played his wife, um, to be in his student film, which is, is all the truth. Ivan was very clear about 
we have to make his wife the shining light, the thing that changes him from this rough, goofy guy. Her, her interventions, as it were, even though they're very short, if you watch the movie again and you see her interventions, they're at key points in the movie that encourage him to be honest and to be become who he became on the radio. Ivan also said they have to have a fight. You have to create a fight for them. And we did create a fight for them. I don't know that they had that fight. I did have that. Uh, you know, that's writing. But do they hold up in the end, all these movies? <laughs> you saw Private Parts recently? I did indeed. What did, what did you think? I would say that movie still holds up. Thank you. Your question was, does it hold up? Stripes is an interesting case. I still get royalties from Stripes. And where do those royalties come from? Um, the Eastern European countries, countries that still fear the Soviet Union, continue. I can see the, in the royalty statements which countries, those countries are still showing Stripes or, or buying the videos or streaming Stripes. So that, does it show, show up? It depends how you feel about the Russian military. I would imagine Stripes is probably pretty popular in the Ukraine right now. Well, that's a great point. Um, you know, I uh, I go, I happen to, you know, we're still in the week of Shiva and I happen to go a lot of Shivas. I'm, I'm actually a rabbi myself. Um, one of the things that I like to ask people, you know, at a Shiva um, is what is a story that they have heard um, of the person that they are mourning in the moment that they didn't know um, until somebody told them during the Shiva, meaning you're sitting in Shiva and somebody tells you a story that is remarkable about your dad, your grandparent, your whatever it is, um, your friend. Um, is there something you've heard in the past week that you didn't know that um, somebody told you about Ivan that um, you really feel like really captures who it is or who he was and uh, all of that. The beautiful thing about Shiva is that while you tell stories about that person, they live. When I talk about Ivan saying uh, Howard and his wife have to have an argument somewhere in the movie, he's alive to me telling me that, okay? They, mm -hmm. they live. So the sad part of Shiva is when it's over and the person is no longer alive in the reality, or, or maybe the end of every Shiva, the, the every day of Shiva, that reality hits you. But while the stories are being told, the person is alive. Yesterday, there was a very small family and a couple of friends funeral in um, Montecito, California. Uh, we were invited, but my wife and I decided not to go for COVID reasons. I didn't want to mm -hmm. fly. But even more than that, I didn't want to be standing close to people I have loved for 50 years and not be able to hug them, not feel safe to hug them. I felt that would be easier to be at a distance and talk to them on the phone. So when I say talking to you is like my Shiva for Ivan, where he, he comes back mm -hmm. to life as I talk about him, um, that <laughs> I've been telling stories to everyone I've been speaking with on the phone. Have I heard stories? Am I more of a, I've been telling more stories than I've heard. Um, these memories are wonderful. Um, it's great to hear. And I really hope that this has been sort of a Shiva call for you. And as we say at the end of every Shiva, right, that you should be comforted amongst the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. And I hope that his memory will be a comfort. Um, thank you for bringing us into that life with him. And uh, hopefully um, these memories and these ideas and these stories are going to keep going uh, far beyond this week. Thank you. I'm very happy to have said a few words about Leslie Reitman, Ivan's father, and Clara Reitman, Ivan's mother as well, Olaf Ashola. Thank you. And now's the time in the show 
where we uh, look at our nachas, see what's newish and Jewish and Canadianish for uh, our listeners to get some nachas from just as much as we did. David, what's your nachas? In honor of our guest and in honor of Ivan Reitman, I'm going to recommend to our listeners to check out or rewatch Kindergarten Cop, an all-time classic uh, that'll that'll move your hearts a little bit, I think. I, I rewatched it this week. It stands the test of time. Alana, what's your nachas of the week? I'm going to expand the ish of new ish. Um, this book came out in 2020, and it's called Shmagoogle, Yiddish Words for Modern Times by Daniel Klein. Uh, they added 200 new Yiddish words to suit the times that we are in, and especially wanted to include uh, intermarried couples and converts. And so I'm just going to uh, shout out a Please, few. Please, I cannot wait to hear the words. Of these. Well, first of all, Shmagoogle, a noun, a person who is so insignificant that when you Google their name, nothing comes up. And the oh. uh, example sentence is. Morty, God bless him, never married, only goes out of the house to work in the grocery stock room and never joined a club, political party, or synagogue. On top of it all, he doesn't own a computer or cell phone. No wonder nobody ever heard of him. He's a bona fide schmagoogle. There you go. How many of these words are just made up on the spot out of nowhere, Alana? I don't know. I don't know. But uh, there's also shmata chic, an adjective, the quality of person who wears worn or old clothes as a fashion statement. There goes Hilda in her ripped jeans looking oh so voguish. I hear she buys them new and then has her maid rip them with pinking schmears. Shmata chic. There you go. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I can like only the, read it in an accent. That's the only way that it's going to work. Gucci, the Gucci shoes that are pre-distressed, right, that have dirt like on the sneakers so that they look like they're not yeah. perfectly white sneakers, but you've worn Yeah, schmata chic. I like that. Yeah, they cover everything. Sounds amazing. Um, I wonder if there's one, while I say this, you'll find one that this covers maybe because I feel like there might be something in the book that deals with this. Uh, I want to shout out uh, Komplansky's Mustard. Um, I don't know if you guys are aware of Komplansky's Deli in Toronto. Zane Kaplansky. It's one of the uh, bastions of old school deliism. Um, it's a great deli. Um, it's not a kosher deli, but it is a Jewish deli. Um, his mustard is now kosher again after a long saga, which we will save for another episode um, because I did hear about this saga, but his mustard is kosher um, and it's great. I went out and I bought a, like a jar about it when I heard about it. I was like, great. This is a good mustard. Not only that, but he's going to be featured, him and his mustard are going to be featured um, in an event that the Nosher is putting on um, called Get to Know Your Jewish Mustards. That um, is This so Tuesday, great. February 22nd, um, there is actually a mustard museum. Um, and what? Yes. Where? Um, you Online? should go check out. It's in Wisconsin. Um, and you should go check out um, the Nosher. That's even We'll put the link in the show notes. <laughs> um, mustard is a, it's, it's the Ur condiment. Um, and mustard is mentioned in the Talmud and, uh, multiple places. Sure. It's, um, Mm. it's one of the things that people had at their, you know, at their table anyways. So, um, check it out, check out Kaplansky's mustard, which is available across Canada, um, or online. Um, and, uh, maybe we'll hear the story of how his mustard became kosher again, um, at some point in the future, but that's my nachas of the week. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending February 18th, Shabbat Kitisa. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at the cjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, you can chat with us on our Slack channel or email us with comments at bonjour at the cjn.ca. 
I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Schmagoogle Sklar. 